thrillers, chillers, and chicks. Hello, and welcome back to Thrillers, Chillers, and Chicks. I am your host, Wackus Bunkus. And I am your host, Woo. <laughs> <laughs> but for real, um, I'm Hannah, and... I'm Erica. <laughs> okay, if you haven't um, listened to our podcast before, uh, we today are going to be discussing the movie One Hour Photo, directed by Mark Romanek and starring Robin Williams. Woo-woo. That intro was a lot smoother. We started before, but it'll be a Patreon reward. (laughs) (laughs) Not the move. Um, But yes, so this is a 2002 movie starring Robin Williams. And it isn't often that you get to see Robin Williams play kind of like a creepy bad guy. You Mm -hmm. know? So this movie was interesting um, to watch kind of for that and that alone. Um, I'm not used to seeing him be kind of so ooky. but one hour photo basically follows um, Cy the photo guy. He works at one of those um, one hour photo developing booths that they used to have back when people would shoot on film. You would bring in your roll of film to be developed and they would get it done for you in about an hour and give you your set of prints. And you would go on your merry way. And he worked in what was kind of, I think, supposed to be like a Walmart type looking store um and he had this one local family that would come in and he would develop their photos for them and they lived in the area a long time so he'd been developing their photos since they were a newlywed couple and watched their son grow up and he kind of develops this obsession with this family and fancies himself kind of being a part of it and is always fantasizing about being a part of the family and sort of treated like an uncle to the point where he's stalking this family, really. Mm -hmm. Um, There comes a point where in developing photos, he learns that the husband is having an affair and he slips a photo of the husband with his mistress into a packet of photos going to the wife of the family to make her aware that her husband is cheating, but in a rage, he, Cy the photo guy, holds the husband and his mistress hostage in a hotel room. And that they at, were cheating in. Yes, they were cheating in at knife point and makes them pose for all of these lewd and explicit photos. Um, and then we learn later on when he's being held in this police interrogation room, he never actually took photos of the husband and his mistress, even though he was forcing them to pose in all these ways. He just took these kind of innocuous pictures of things in the hotel room, like a hanger or a curtain rod or, you know, the desk. And uh, that is where the movie ends. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot like um, <clears throat> he he does a lot of stuff uh, in the movie because he. You know, at one point, we learn he actually gets fired from his one-hour photo job because he was um, making, he was, like, writing down for there to be an extra set of copies printed 
um, but he wouldn't charge the customers for them because he was keeping those copies. And they find out later in his apartment that he has a wall of pictures of this family. Um, and when he learns the husband is cheating, he like scratches out the husband's face and, you know, he's looking through all of them and he like goes to see the kid at his soccer practice and tries to give him a toy he picked up one day. He sits in front of the house and takes pictures in front of the house once he finds out about the cheating. Um, and when he gets fired and he, before he goes on his like quote unquote rampage where he decides to go and take those lewd photos of the family, um, he even goes to kind of like low key threaten his boss uh, by taking a picture of his boss's daughter in their yard. Yeah, that was. <laughs> and having them developed at where he used to work. And then the other person who worked there reported them. The other person who worked there, his like coworker in the photo booth, his name was Yoshi. And yeah. I love him. Yoshi we was the Yoshi in this MVP of this movie. <laughs> Yoshi was doing his best. He really got thrust into a weird situation, but I love him. Yoshi was just trying to work his minimum wage job and go home. <laughs> For real. For real. But yeah, it was it was really interesting. It kind of, you know, showed the obsession that he had with this family, but it wasn't it, normally when I watch movies about stalkers or, you know, you hear about stalkers, they're usually interested in, like, one woman or something. Um, but or being, thing, like, I thought he was going to be the dad, like, wanted to be the dad. Exactly. But it, it wasn't <laughs> like he was just after the wife and this family. He wanted to just be a part of the whole thing as, like, another member of the family. Um, and that really kind of, you know, uh, makes you think about the loneliness, I guess, of this guy that he must be feeling to go as far as, like, insert himself into this family's life that he's not, you know, even on a first name basis with them, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at one point, the family's son, his name is Jake, he's, like, maybe nine, um, he mentions that he thinks Sai, the photo guy, is sad, and that he doesn't have any friends or family, and his mom's like, oh, that's so sweet of you, you know, we'll send him some good thoughts, and, you know, hopefully he won't be so sad the next time we see him and stuff, and I don't know, it's really interesting, because normally when I'm watching a show or a movie about a stalker, and it is just focused on, like, the one woman, even if they are, like, you know, one of the, like, reasons they give is, like, oh, well, he's just lonely. I'm, like, okay, go to a singles bar or something. <laughs> he's stalking people, you freak. But in this, since it seemed more like he just wanted a family and to, like, kind of be a part of something, um, just kind of missing that, like, just affection um, in his life, it it made you feel a lot more sympathetic towards him at first. Um, Definitely what he was doing was still really creepy and wrong, but I think he was a little bit more of a sympathetic character than um, stalkers usually are, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. And even the ending finds a very interesting way, very interesting way to make him sympathetic, especially in a way that I didn't expect. Yes. Um, Because, like, 
and there are so many things that this movie does so cool and so right. Um, Because, like, uh, you get to the end, right, and he talks to the investigator, and he's even respectful then. And, you know, while he was shooting those photos, he was very sex-repulsed. So in those photos, like, in the way he poses them, they're still not touching. Um, They're, like, close, but still not touching each other. And, um... He, uh, like, he alludes to the fact that he had been abused by his family or his father or mother or somebody. We don't really get to know uh, for sure. Um, and then he goes and he's like, hey, can I see my pictures? And he lays them out. And that's when it's revealed that they he wasn't even taking pictures of them. That he was just taking pictures of, like, you know, the fire, um, the fire system, like the little extinguisher Water sprinkler. Yeah, thank you. The sprinkler on the ceiling or like the TV remote or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it still paints him kind of sympathetic, even though yeah. you're also like, ah, that was creepy. I hated that. It is interesting because like when he talks about his abuse um, or alludes to it, because um, we saw when he went to hold the the husband and the mistress hostage like he was in a blind rage pretty much mm-hmm. but even in such a blind rage it was like there was this line that he wouldn't cross of taking these explicit pictures mm-hmm. of someone else because of the abuse he'd suffered and it's i'm not even sure the movie you know it kind of leaves it open to interpretation like i'm not really even sure if he was aware that he wasn't taking pictures of them you know what i mean Mm-hmm. Like, because he's very meticulous in posing them, meticulous. but yeah. at the same time, they're never touching. Like he, he, like, um, there's a visual where they're like hovering, and you like you can tell that their hands are hovering over, but they're not touching. And and she tells him to like do this thing, and then she's like, no, 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 don't touch it. Like just <laughs> get close does, or whatever. He doesn't. Like he's definitely a villain in the sense that he's a stalker and you know he does this traumatizing thing to this couple but mm-hmm. he doesn't seem to have the level of intelligence and forethought to like plan something out to I don't think he like planned that out to purely be psychological torture does that make sense mm-hmm. where he like makes them think he's taking these pictures but he's not really it, it which makes me question like because he seems to be kind of a simple-minded guy it just makes me question whether he knew whether or not he was not taking the pictures of them. Mm-hmm. And that's a good question. It's what it's something that I didn't quite consider. Um, <clears throat> and another thing that I do find really interesting is the way they depict that trauma and just how traumatizing that was to that cut to the the husband and the mistress in itself. Because later you see she's like in the shower having a breakdown, like you know sitting at the bottom of the shower in like the fetal position and the guy is at the edge of the bed and even when he's reunited with his family he he still looks shaken and upset and and like it's really haunting him and it's really interesting for them to paint that picture especially since like you know before he comes in there you know it sounds like you know minutes before they were doing those things consensually um and now it's in a whole different light because they're you know it's you know now it's against their will and even though they're two consenting partners who are familiar with each other in this new context it's very very different 
Exactly. Um, <laughs> another thing that I thought was really interesting, um, just artistically, a decision they made is, you know, we have a few scenes where Sai is in his like kind of depressing little apartment by himself. Um, watching TV at night and in his TV room, there's a wall of pictures of this family that he's like accumulated over the years. Uh, There's pictures from when the couple was a newlywed uh, to when the wife was pregnant and they have their newborn son and like, you know, just on over the years. Um, And so he's kind of sitting there with this backdrop of the family behind him. And the first scene we see um, him watching is a scene from The Simpsons where Bart receives like this threatening note um, it says die Bart die says, <laughs> mm-hmm. who'd want to kill me you know and uh Homer says oh it's probably someone who knows you really well um and then it pans to Cy the photo guy sitting there with this backdrop of the family um because he does know the family really well even though they don't know that and you know it's sort of like He's watching and waiting for them to make a mistake of some kind. Um, And the second scene um, that he's watching on the TV, it's from this like old black and white movie. Unfortunately, I'm not very well versed in them. It might be famous. I don't know, (laughs) but it was. uh, I don't think I recognized it either. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there was basically a guy saying something along the lines of like, uh, you know, well, if you're going to come for me, like make, you know, make a decision about when and where like I'll I'll be waiting or something like that um and it was it was when he was kind of uh he was looking at the photos trying to to find the mistress in the photos like he was trying to make a decision about whether or not he was going to go after the husband um and I thought that was really interesting how like what he was watching on tv kind of like foreshadowed his actions later on or kind of how he was relating to the family at the time, you know? Um. That's something that I didn't quite notice or I didn't quite put together. Like I noticed those lines and stuff being said that I was, I guess I was so shocked after the fact that I didn't even think to connect it back. It was, (laughs) yeah, the ending was a lot. That movie had me in a constant state of uncomfortable and upset. Like, even in my notes, I have maybe one note uh, that's valid, and then the other notes are, he makes me uncomfortable, in all caps. Uh, I hate it, ah, in all caps. And then, did I mention, I hate this, in all caps. Just because I was, I, ooh, I was like, don't do that. Oh, I hate that. Ooh, ah, no, ooh. It's, um, yeah. It's... You know, I guess some of the greater social issues that this movie kind of looks at is, um, you know, obviously the the loneliness that Sai is dealing with. Um, it's something I think a lot of people in our day and age deal with is kind of that loneliness and isolation. And it's interesting because this was in the early 2000s before the age of really like social media. Uh, like the Internet was around, but it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. Um but the idea of him being this photo developer who gets to handle all of these people's private and intimate moments, um, you know, see their happy family and kind of stuff like that. He talks a lot about how, you know, the only pictures people take are things that they want to remember. No one takes pictures of the mundane or, 
you know, the tragic that they they don't want to recall. And if you were to look at someone's life in a series of pictures, you would think that they'd lived this like happy, perfect existence. And that kind of echoes a lot of the commentary on uh, social media that we have now where we're only seeing the highlights of people's lives and there's a lot of um, comparison that happens, but also a lot of heightening, I think, of those feelings of isolation and loneliness that we can all experience because from our point of view, looking at someone's life in snapshots, it's they're happy and they're surrounded by people they love when that might not always be the case. Like as we see with this family, they're the couple is always fighting, the husband is cheating, the wife is unhappy, like you know, this family that he has picked out as the ideal uh, family, I guess, like the mm-hmm. ideal family and, <clears throat> some, you know, a, a thing he wants to be a part of because they just look like the perfect picture of domestic bliss. It's it's not the case. And even though it sounds like logically he knows that what you see in pictures isn't always reality, he still has latched on to this ideal and this idealized version of the family that he's created and he wants so desperately to be a part of it and it's just interesting in this day and age of social media where I think it's being talked about a lot more because I think it's being experienced kind of on a wider scale because back then not everyone was a one-hour photo tech guy you know Mm -hmm. but now we you know you, you open your phone and you're bombarded with pictures of your friends and your family out on vacation and out with other friends and doing stuff and people you don't even know living these amazing lives that they're posting on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and you know it's especially with the pandemic I think people are feeling a level of isolation uh that is new to many Mm -hmm. and even I think it's cool because I maybe It even says something about how it was a problem even before social media. I think a lot of people get really quick to jump down the throats of social media and to say it's all about performance and blah, 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 blah. But I think there's even a a bit of social media and harmfulness in, I guess, within ourselves and within just even regular pictures. Because before then, like, you could liken his obsession with the family to our obsessions with celebrities and magazines and how we put them Mm -hmm. on a pedestal uh, just because we see glimpses of their happy lives, uh, even sometimes when they don't even realize they're being photographed in these happy moments. So they're like paparazzi. Or, um, and even, like, the family, they spend a, a part of the movie where they're looking at the photos from the kid's birthday party, which we see photos taken of in the beginning because they go to get them processed and um even though their life has that background of issues even they're looking back at their own pictures that they took and kind of you know looking at them like look at us we have this happy life Mm -hmm. you know look at this and you know I know I do this and I'm sure a lot of other people do but even social media in terms of just not even posting things for myself but looking at my own Instagram feed and looking and being like you know, that's me. Those are all these happy moments. I look like, you know, I look like I have this put together happy life and that nothing's wrong in the background. And I'm doing all these things when that's still a minority of my life. And it's even interesting to see that even though I posted those photos, you know, I know both sides and even to look at them and go, hmm. (laughs) It's almost like you're looking at a, at a stranger because you know that this 
this image that you're presenting of yourself isn't necessarily the whole picture mm-hmm. but um yeah and I I would definitely agree like it's been a problem for years and there's you know there's been stories and books and movies going way way back even about um I think a good example of a of a tr- like a common trope is like small town America like deep south small town there's like the the family that's always put together and they come to church on Sunday and they sit in the front row and they look like the per- picture perfect family um but you know behind closed doors things are different and I think social media has really um just taken this problem probably to like a grander scale but it's really just the human problem of um just always wanting to present yourself as having it all together when in reality no one does and you know putting on a public face is not always a bad thing uh there's definitely things that you know there's definitely a difference between public and private and that line should be there but i think the problem comes when you start comparing your personal face to everyone's public face and you you've got to realize everyone has their own problems no one has their life together and it's it's a hard thing to do to not play the comparison game um especially when you feel like your life is not where you want it to be it's easy to look at other people and say um oh they're doing a much better job than me or they've got it they've got it all and I don't have anything or whatever but I don't think I've ever met anyone who's truly happy with where they are what they have Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes absolutely preach (laughs) (laughs) it's just you know it's a I think especially for people our age Erica and I are both in our 20s um, and when you're in your 20s, you're you're kind of building the foundation for the rest of your life. You might be going to school or starting a new job or getting married or having kids, but everyone is kind of at a totally different place, um, you know, in your 20s. And it's hard to not feel like it's some kind of a foot race, like, oh, this person's married, but I'm not, or this person has a job, but I don't, or this person lives with their parents, but... Um, I moved out, maybe I should live with my parents and save money, or maybe I should live on my own and be independent, and you're just always questioning yourself and wondering if you're, like, hitting all the metrics you should be hitting for your life, and mm-hmm. I think and also... afraid you're running out of time, because, like... Yes. I, I'm only accepting that 30 is still a very young age at a very young time. Uh, and that my tw- my life doesn't end or my young life doesn't end after I after my twenties, but it's it's kind of hard to exactly to accept or absorb. It's just kind of I think the way um, we both live in America. I think the way you know, obviously, if you couldn't tell from our accents or general attitudes, um, <laughs> you know, we're both American. Um, and I think the way our society is set up, it's um, you're supposed to do a lot of that building of your life in your 20s. And then by the time you hit 30, traditionally, you're supposed to be kind of done. But you're never really done building your life. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I, but I do think there is a lot of pressure on people our age to kind of have your career and your marriage and your kids, like all kind of like sorted out and done by the time you hit 30 and then you can go on from there and just like sit back and enjoy. Mm-hmm. But Which is even impossible. Cause even like yeah. one of my big fears about in my twenties, it's like, I'm supposed to be creating this foundation for my life. But at the same time, I'm like, well, I need to start trying new things and doing everything now while I'm young and traveling while I'm young and doing this while I'm young. And I'm like, but at the same time, I'm like, well, I just got out of college. I don't have a job where, you know, who's going to pay for that? Um, you know, <laughs> It's like I have yeah. to be established, but also have all my crazy young, cool experiments and experiences <laughs> now in my 20s. And that's just not very realistic. Exactly. And the other thing I think isn't talked about enough is that people in their 20s are stupid. Like, I'm supposed to make a decision on marriage. I'm supposed to have a child. I'm a moron. <laughs> you know, you are not a moron. You're very smart and fiscally <laughs> responsible and great and beautiful. But <laughs> I hate making decisions as well, especially like 20 is such a young age. So you're like, I have to make this decision and it could affect the trajectory of my entire life. <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, it's it's like this fear that you're never going to be like, if you make this decision, you're going to be stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And I'm because of that fear. And I think, you know, I kind of grew up with that fear and that idea that you're stuck with the decisions you make. You made your bed. You got to lie in it. Buy a new bed. Like <laughs> you don't like that one. Just get a new one. Mm-hmm. I think you can change your life at any time that you want to. And I also think, You know, we've had some conversations about, I think, at this age, it's easy to say, um, I like, I'll enjoy my life when I graduate, or I'll enjoy my life once I buy a house, or Mm -hmm. I can start enjoying my life once I get married, because then I'll be... Or once I lose weight. Once I lose weight, once I do this, once I do that, then I can be happy. I can allow myself to be happy. That's when my life will start. Your life is happening now, and not everything might look the way you want, but there's no reason you shouldn't allow yourself to be happy and enjoy yourself now, because, spoiler alert, (laughs) life is never going to look exactly the way you want it. There's always going to be something that you want to work on, and Mm -hmm. that's good. You know, you should always be making progress and moving forward, but I think it's, I know for me especially, it's easy to get caught up in the, um... I'll be happy when, or I'll let myself be happy when, kind of, mm-hmm. uh, go around. So I'm really working on trying to live in the moment. Yep. Same, same, yeah. same. Big same. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The, the chick's wisdom corner, baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Only we can take a movie about a 60-year-old stalker from the Walmart photo booth and turn it into a life lesson on loving yourself. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I always hate transitioning because I always feel like I do it awkwardly. <laughs> but um, one thing, another thing, I guess, kind of uh, getting back to the the movie (laughs) um one thing that I really 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 liked about this movie is how well it portrays um the subtlety and simplicity and like the process of like stalking and being stalked and and how that comes about 
because like in the beginning like I could already feel like um I think I've said so in other episodes but I have been stalked before and have been in a similar situation in my life uh more than once I always think of that TikTok. Uh, if if I had a I coin had for a every time, <laughs> yeah, I'd have two nickels. But it's weird; it happened twice, right? <laughs> but um, because like even in the beginning, like he's talking to them and getting their photos, and it's very subtle boundary pushing. Like he he um, you know, he already knows their address, which he works there. They have to have their address for those things, like. You know, you can't get by in your life without people really at least one stranger knowing something about you, whether it's, you know, you go to the doctor, you don't know the secretary, but you still have to put down your social security number and your address and your, you know, show them a bill to prove that you live there or whatever. Um, But, you know, he knows their address by heart because of all these years. And um, he gives the boy a camera and the mom's like, no, I can't take that. And and he's like, no, 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 go ahead. It's birthdays. And she's like, "Okay," and. Um, when she comes back, the photos are a different size than she wanted. And he's like, well, the bigger ones are better. And and I'm not going to charge you extra. You know, those are all subtle little boundary pushes, kind of testing those limits and getting a little too comfortable, um, even though you don't really know someone. And there's even a point she picks up the photos and there's a book in her bag that she was shopping for. And he actually buys that book. And uses it later to kind of get into a deeper and more involved conversation with her. And like, you know, who who thinks that when I check out, I'm going to see this person again. Or when I'm talking to my classmate that they're picking up or paying attention to the book I have on my desk or in my bag. or And, you know, it, it's very easy to be subtly manipulated and subtly taken advantage of. And that's not at all her fault. But it's no, it's something that's so easy and convoluted and scary, but so realistic at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's one of those things where, you know, you move through the world and sometimes you really think like it is so easy for other people to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, just kind of like we see in this movie, like Sai just kind of takes advantage of of things that a normal person or like a a moral person wouldn't take advantage of <laughs> you know um like i ordered pizza tonight um i don't think my delivery driver is gonna come and like axe murder me but i guess he could if he wanted to <laughs> mm-hmm. and not to scare you but it's not something that's never happened either you know yeah it's yeah. and it's like one of those things with the reality of like it's it's dangerous out there and you need to be wary, but at the same time, you really can't live life without, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, being a, a, a little over Sherry or being a little, you know, letting your guard down and doing something like you kind of have to, to function. Like you can't go to your doctor without giving somebody your address and, yeah, you know, stuff like that. And there's also the, you know, like Sai isn't, threatening he's not like the big monster and even at the end like he still doesn't appear to be this big monster this big maniac or this crazy you know um he's definitely a guy who who did something wrong um it's still wrong even though he didn't necessarily use it for violence or or to to harass like the mom and the kid or anything like that but it's still wrong it's Mm -hmm. still scary it's still uncomfortable and uh, even though he's not this big evil monster who's like doing anything to anybody, 
um, aside from, you know, at the very end. And even then, like, you know, he doesn't take those pictures and he doesn't even really have them touch each other. Like he, they're like just hovering. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, it's still like wrong and scary, but at the same time, not what you picture when you think of a stalker, the, the maniac at knife point or the person who's like taking these awful pictures. Exactly. Yeah, it's like uh, at first glance, the concept of this movie seems like really simple and like it is, but it's so well done Mm -hmm. that, you know, there's there's a lot to it that they like a lot of layers that they put in there. I think it was very Mm -hmm. well done. Um, Very well done. And Robin Williams did such a good job because like even especially for us who's, you know, who's seen Robin Williams's life and, (laughs) you know, have lived in a world where he is like the face of a lot of our childhoods and a lot of our happy memories. Like I've seen him in like Bicentennial Man and, you know, he's Aladdin and I've seen him in all these happy roles. And even now, like his performance in that movie was so good that at no point did I feel like I was taken out of it because it was him. Mm-hmm. even though I already have such a huge association with him with other things. So exactly. he, chef's kiss, beautiful job. He's, you know, excellent. Amazing. Everything he, he does. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. So how many five by seven photo prints out of 10 <laughs> would you give one hour photo? Um, oh, I hate this question. <laughs> even though we do it every time and we have to. Um, I'm, I just, I can't really find anything to really fault. It -hmm. was really good. I wouldn't say it's the best movie I've ever seen either, but it was still really, really good. So Mm -hmm. I want to say like eight, eight and a half, like somewhere in that range. Cause it's well done. The story was really good. I wasn't expecting it. I had a good time, like pretty good, pretty good watch. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would have to agree. I was going to give it a seven photo prints out of 10, um, just because I do think it for the very simple concept that it has, they managed to do a lot with it. Um, very well done. The uh, performance by Robin Williams was excellent. The rest of the cast was OK. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Robin Williams really carried that carried that movie. I don't think it would have been as good if, if they'd had someone else in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a really good job, and the the guy who played the detective did a really good job. I liked him a mm-hmm. lot. Um, there's also... <laughs> oh, there's, just because this issue is right after... Not only is this episode right after The Shining, but we also watched the movie, like, the day after The Shining. Uh, yeah. But we talked about there's a scene where he has his nightmare, and he's in the store with his eyes closed, and he opens the eyes, and they're, like, bloodshot, and then his eyes start bleeding. And we were joking because, like, that scene took us totally off guard, shocking, but really cool. And, mm-hmm. and we said that that scene was what that elevator scene in The Shining kind of wishes it was, like, was kind of trying to do, but couldn't really. <laughs> it was. It was good. <laughs> that um, one got me. That was a good one. Because I was trying to figure out, too, if it was, like, blood or the red dye that they use on the photo prints. You know? Like, see, 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 layers, ladies and gentlemen. Like, <laughs> but yeah, it was a very good movie. It was well done for what it was. I don't think it's anything I would watch again. And usually, things that I'm I'm not ever gonna watch for a second time, I rate um, seven or below. Um, valid, valid. 
Yeah, like, and it's not because it wasn't good, but just because, you know, there's not really much more, per se. Exactly. Yeah, there's some movies you get everything you're going to get out of it on the first watch, and that's okay, because, mm-hmm. you know. That's still good. <laughs> still good. Um, some movies I watch, and I feel like I didn't even get what I wanted out of it on the first go. <laughs> the Shining. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> listening to these out of order, spoiler alert. We don't like The Shining. <laughs> we we did not like The Shining all that much. <laughs> but we did like this movie. And Stephen King is going to get a second chance in a couple of weeks here. We're going to talk about Carrie. Um, mm, he'll probably week... get a lot of chances over the course of this. <laughs> oh, yeah. For sure. But uh, next week we will be talking about Sleepaway Camp, which was Erica's pick for so October extravaganza. I've been wanting to watch this movie for a really long time, so... I'm excited. I'm, I'm looking forward And we can't wait to see you all there and talk about it with you guys. But until then, stay spooky. Stay spooky. Woo.